We are in our Presence of God series. Um, and you've heard Pastor Tracy mention a little bit. I'm going to mention it. We are having a lot of fun with this series, I have to say. Uh, it's my favorite kind of series to dig into. There's history involved. There's research. There's digging in. It's all the things that I love. If you've been with us for any length of time, you will know that I love history. One time I even had a message from the Queen built into my message. I just love all of this stuff. So this is like right up my alley and um, understand that I cut four pages of notes out this morning because there was just so much I wanted to say and it wasn't all necessary. So just, um, if you want to know more, just come ask me later. No, don't do that. Just, no, don't do that. Uh, but just know that I did try and cut it back. The goal for the series that we're in right now is that we would have opportunities to long for the presence of God, to recognize the presence of God in our lives, and to understand how we find the presence of God in Scripture. Last week, we heard from Pastor Tracy that Moses met with God face to face. He experienced the presence of God, and it transformed him. He was unwilling to leave the place, unwilling to do life without meeting with God we learned that they took the tent of meeting, which is where the presence of God dwelt from outside of the tent, uh, tent, outside of the camp, right into the center of camp, because they wanted to orient their lives around the presence of God. And they wanted to be different and set apart. All the other uh, tribes, all the other religions had their tents outside, but the Israelites were to have God as the center. They were to be set apart and to be different. We learned that the presence of God dwelt in the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, we discussed at our CP group that they're kind of interchangeable words. Tent of meeting and tabernacle are interchangeable. Um, the presence of God was known by the cloud that rested in the Holy of Holies, the innermost place of the tabernacle, where only the high priests could go and minister. Um, I have an image of a very simple one of the tabernacle. So if that helps you in any way, that's kind of what it would look like. You would come in, there's the inner sanctuary, and then the Holy of Holies set apart, and there are things all throughout that. In the tabernacle, there are um, lampstands, there's the table of showbread, there's the altar of the incense, there's the veil that divides the two uh, portions, and there is the Ark of the Covenant. And again, this is probably not entirely accurate, but it's an artist's representation of this. It would have looked something like this. We are going to talk this morning about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a wooden chest that was overlaid with gold. Uh, just in case any of you are wondering, it was not a miniature of Noah's Ark, which is what I imagined for most of my childhood. I imagined they were carrying around a miniature Noah's Ark. Probably, I'm just going to, I was probably still an adult by the time I totally figured it out. But just to clear that up for all of you, in case anybody else was there with me, I heard the word Ark. And I thought, Noah, it's not really my fault. It's not really something that we use in our vernacular today. In the same way that there were specific um, instructions given for the construction of the temple, the tab uh, the, not the temple, well, yes, but the tabernacle, uh, there were very specific instructions given for the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. And we read those in Exodus 25, 10 to 22. If you want, you can follow along in the YouVersion app on your phone, or there are Bibles in front of you. And I left my Bible on my office desk, so I'm going to read from my notes this morning. Have them make an art of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, and a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. 
Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. Then put the ark of the tablets of the covenant of law which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to take... The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward and overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put it in the ark of the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and I will give you all of the commands for Israelites, for the Israelites. I have another picture of the ark, if you want to show it for us, Vaughn. The ark probably weighed between three to 600 pounds. Uh, again, this is an artist's representation, but I'm a visual person, so this helps me to understand what we're talking about. On top of the ark, so the ark is the chest at the bottom, and then on top of the ark is the atonement cover. And between the two cherubim, as you can see with their wings, is where the glory or the presence of God dwelt. It also was called the mercy seat sometimes. The ark was holy and set apart. It was not to be touched. You really weren't even supposed to look at it for too long. It was um, a symbol of God's presence and power among the Israelites. Now, for some of you, since the first time I said the word ark, you have been humming something in your head. Anybody? No, am I the only one? Also, Pastor Tracy, did we play that in band? Did we play? Yes. So this, also, when putting this message together, I have like a distinct memory of Pastor Tracy on her trombone, like da-da-da-da, yeah. We were in um, high school band together, and we definitely played this song as one of our band songs, and I'm glad that wasn't something I made up in my head. Pastor Tracy on her trombone, me on my trumpet, barely keeping up, but still having a really good time. I am not gifted in that in any way. Uh, but anyways, lots of you were thinking of it. It's the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's a really great movie, um, but... If that's all you understand about the Ark, is Indiana Jones seeking it, you're really missing out. The actual account of the Ark of the Covenant reads a lot like a Hollywood movie. You can substitute the Nazis for Philistines and you're getting a lot closer to what actually happened. Uh, so let's, let's trace the, old, the Ark of the Covenant through the Old Testament. Uh, we start from Exodus. You can trace the Ark of the Covenant all the way through the Old Testament. We see it mentioned in Numbers 10, 33 to 35. When the Israelites were wandering in the desert, waiting to find the promised land, the ark went before them to find places of rest. So they set out from the mountain of the Lord and traveled for three days. The ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. We see the ark in Deuteronomy, and then in Joshua 3, we see the ark being carried into the Jordan River, causing the water to stop flowing so that the people could cross on dry land. That was the instructions that the Lord gave. If you know the story of Jericho from Joshua chapter 6, Jericho was a city, a walled city that was, um, the Israelites were to conquer and pass through to get to the promised land. You know the story. They traveled around the walls, and the trumpets blew, and the walls fell down. The ark actually went before the trumpeters. The ark was part of that. 
The ark is the backdrop of much of the Old Testament, and it was a strong symbol of God's power, so strong that foreign nations knew about the ark and were afraid of it. The ark was holy because God allowed his presence to reside in it. God was not contained in the ark, but he rested there. It was the Israelite symbol of God's presence, and they took it with them wherever they went and as the Lord directed them. It appears in Scripture that at some point in the ark's history, a subtle shift begins to happen, and the ark becomes less of something that God is commanding them to use and more of a good luck symbol that the Israelites are looking to. When the ark was with them, they couldn't be defeated. This was true. The walls of Jericho fell. The Jordan River stopped flowing. God's presence dwelt in it. The ark was powerful. God's presence was powerful. And when God was with them, they were undefeatable. But something started to change. Maybe to some of the Israelites, their understanding of the ark shifted from it being about the presence of God in the ark to the ark was the presence. Coming close, they came close to making it an idol in their lives, I think. And this shift comes full circle uh, in 1 Samuel 4. Let's read that together. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. So the people, uh, so the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Jump down to verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So Eli was the high priest at the time. Just So it was the high priest's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that went and got the ark. The ark is now in the hands of the Philistines. See, I'm telling you, it's... A lot like the movie plot, just not Nazis. We have Philistines. It's fine. What I don't read in this account, and if you go back and read the other accounts of the Ark, but what I, I don't read here is God commanding or telling or asking or suggesting that the Israelites go and get the Ark and bring it to this battle. The place where the Ark was was in the Holy of Holies. It was in the place where it belonged. It was at the part, the place where they worshipped, where they made sacrifices, where they honored God. The Holy of Holies was not to be entered lightly. It was to be done once a year. It was to be done by the high priest. It was to be done with sacrifice and atonement and consecration and all of those really big words that they use in the Old Testament. It was a big deal to go in there and move the ark. But the two sons of the high priest took it upon themselves to go enter the Holy of Holies and remove the ark. They desecrated the Holy of Holies by entering it. They should have never gone in there in the first place. Not only were they not commanded to get the ark, but they just desecrated the Holy of Holies. Think about that for a minute. The Israelites had turned away from God at this point and were clinging to a form of godliness. They had memories of past victories. They knew what the ark had done in the past, but they weren't seeking for a fresh experience with God. They were seeking for an answer to their immediate need. Their interaction with the ark looks similar to how 
all of the other tribes and people were interacting with their lowercase gods, trotting it out to put it put on display to meet their needs. They rightly recognized the great holiness of the ark, but they thought the ark itself was the source of power. The ark was merely a symbol of God's presence and a place for God's presence to rest. A symbol of God does not guarantee his presence. I wear a cross around my neck to remind me of the sacrifice of Jesus and also because my grandpa gave it to me and he was really special to me. The symbolism of the cross is powerful. It invokes thoughts and points my mind to Jesus and I think about the sacrifice that he made for me and the fact that I am forgiven in his presence. But this cross around my neck holds no power. It's Jesus himself that died on the cross that lives in my heart that is the power in my life. The Philistines are initially thrilled that they captured the ark. Remember that all the surrounding nations knew about the ark and understood its power. So this was a really, really big deal for them. They had conquered or defeated the Israelites. They had captured its source of power. They were very happy. So they took the ark and they placed it in another god's temple. And that just didn't really work out so well. That god kept falling over and his arms broke and it just was not going well. You can read about that. Uh, so they had to move it. So then the ark started a journey and it just kept getting moved around. And everywhere it went, you can just think devastation. So there was bubonic plagues and there was death and there was destruction. Everywhere that the Philistines put the ark, bad things happened. Really bad things happened. To the point that after only seven months, the Philistines were like, we can't keep this thing. It cannot stay here. And so they made a plan to send it back to the Israelites and they sent with it not just the ark, but gold for a guilt offering because they understood they should have never taken it in the first place. And they wanted to make atonement for that. So the ark is returned to the Israelites at Beth Shemesh. Yay! 70 people died uh, for looking at the ark. Not so yay. This is the story of the ark. 70 people, they were celebrating, they were excited. The ark had come back to them. 70 people died just for looking too long at the ark. I don't fully understand. I don't fully understand. I'm trying to filter uh, this all through my 2023 lens, and I don't fully understand. But what I do understand from Scripture is that there were rules and regulations for the ark. And those rules and regulations were continuing to be violated. The ark still remained not about the presence of God, but about the symbol. The ark itself had become a god. So after that, the ark is moved to Kirith Jerim. I don't think I said that right, but you'll bear with me. To Eliezer, who was, he was consecrated to guard the ark, and it stayed there for 20 years. While all of this is happening and the ark is being moved around, the Israelites are crying out to God for a king. They're tired of having judges. They want a king to rule them. So Saul is anointed king. If you know anything about this, he's not a great king, and it ends pretty terribly. So then David is anointed king, and he eventually takes the throne. And this is where we come back to the ark in 2 Samuel 6, 1 to 18. David again brought together all the able men from Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Balal in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it up from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Aho, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. Aho was talking in front of it 
David and all the is were walking in front of it. David and all the is all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day this place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. So David was attempting to do the right thing. We can see that. He was bringing the ark back to the tabernacle. He had constructed a new tabernacle in Jerusalem in the center of the Israelites, and he was attempting to do the right thing. I don't understand why 70 people had to die. I don't understand why Uzzah had to die for just trying to, to keep the ark safe but I do understand that there are rules and regulations to the ark, to God's holiness, to his presence, and to how the Israelites were supposed to interact with that. In David's excitement to return the ark, he didn't move it according to the very clear instructions that were given. We already read them. Do you remember it? Do you remember how the ark was to be moved? It wasn't to be placed in a cart. It was to be moved by poles through the rings that were attached to it, and the Israelites were to carry the weight of it wherever they went. The ark was to be moved only by Levites, and it had to be moved by carrying it. Now, I'm sure the cart they made was very nice. I don't doubt that. I'm sure it was incredibly strong. It would have had to have been to carry that 300-pound ark. But no matter how thoughtful and carefully they sought to deliver the ark, they weren't following the Lord's instructions. They weren't to deliver the ark in a cart. They were to carry the presence of God wherever it went. And Uzzah paid the consequence for their disobedience. We continue with the ark's return in 2 Samuel 6, verse 12. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, David, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. That was how they were to move the ark. Do you see the different motivations we have in the movement of the ark? We see the Israelites moving it to secure victory, not by mandate from the Lord, but because they wanted something. They had a need, and they desperately needed it met. It wasn't about God. It was about their own need. And then we see David, who sought the Lord. His heart was for the presence of God to be in its rightful place in Israel in his life. David came to worship and adore and to do it properly. 
This time when the ark was moved, it wasn't about delivering a parcel to a place. It was with the understanding that they were carrying the presence of God with them. It wasn't about what they could get from the ark. It was about having the presence of God central to them. Carrying the ark back to the tabernacle wasn't about what the ark could do for them. The focus was not on a box, a beautiful box, but it was on the one that filled that box, the one who brought them victory. It was never the ark who brought terror to the other nations. It wasn't the ark that the people were afraid of. It wasn't the ark that stopped the water. It wasn't the ark that brought the walls of Jericho down. It wasn't the ark that killed 70 people in Uzzah. It was never the ark. It was the presence of God that dwelt between the cherubim on that mercy seat. It was never about the ark. It was always about the presence of God. The Israelites needed an encounter with the holy God. They needed his presence. They needed to respond to it and worship and offer sacrifices and make themselves right before God and put God in the rightful place. It was never about the ark. It was about what they were doing with the very presence of God. We are called like the Israelites to be carriers of the presence of God carrying it with us everywhere we go, to work, to home, to school, wherever you go, you, child of God, are a carrier of the presence of God. Because of the presence, because of Jesus, the presence of God, the same presence that dwelt in the ark, dwells in us through relationship with him. David wanted God's presence. We know this because he's written so much about it in the Psalms. David craved to be close to God. He loved the Lord. He wanted more than anything to have a relationship with God. And that is what we are called to today. The ark returning wasn't about David's kingdom. It wasn't about making David great. It was about honoring the holy God. David was a passionate, demonstrative man who took off the robes of kingship and put on the robes of a priest. He set aside everything else and he worshipped with everything he had before the presence of God. He wasn't worshipping before the ark. He was worshipping before the presence of God. He worshipped as a child of God, as an Israelite, as a man who was called to revere and honour and worship the one true God. Later on, I, I didn't read it, but you can read David's reaction to his wife, Michal, who deeply did not like David's response to worship she calls him out she says he's embarrassed himself and David says I'll become more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes to David it didn't matter what else was going on around him it didn't matter what he looked like it didn't matter what the people thought of him all that mattered was that he placed God in the proper place and honored him as he deserved David was hungry for an encounter with God are you hungry for the presence of God like David? Now, I don't know about you. I don't really want to dance before the Lord in front of anyone ever or dance ever at all ever. That's just not who I am. But it's not about what I want. It's not about what I'm comfortable with. It's about how the Lord is asking me to respond to his presence. Are you willing to respond without constraint to his presence like David. David could have worshipped from a respectable distance. He was the king. He could have stood with all dignity and honor and pomp and circumstance and all of those things, but 
I don't think if he had done that, he would have been putting the correct honor on God. We have the privilege as followers of Christ to be carriers of God's presence. God's presence was not limited to that small space between the cherubim's wings, although he chose to dwell there. He wasn't contained there. He chose to allow part of himself to rest there so that the Israelites could have an understanding and a tangible view of God. The presence of God was not limited to the ark, and the presence of God is not limited to the four walls of this church. Although it resides here, his presence doesn't stay here. We are his church. We are his people. We are his dwelling place. We are his children, and we carry the presence of God. He is no longer limited to a box between two cherubim. He lives and resides in you. 2 Timothy 1.4 says, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The same spirit that dwelt in the ark dwells in you, follower of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? What is our response to the presence of God? We need fresh encounters with his presence. We need to seek out his presence daily, moment by moment, not to cart it out when we need something, but to be living in it so that when you need something, you're already in conversation. You're already surrounded by his presence. You're already there. You don't have to work yourself up to asking. You're just continuing a conversation you are already having. We need fresh encounters with the presence of God. We need to pursue proximity to the presence of God. David pursued the presence of God. He wanted to be close to it. He wanted to be near to it. Do you want to be near to the presence of God? When was the last time that you desperately sought God's presence? Not for a need, but just to be near him. Just to soak in his presence. To be changed by his presence. According to the Barna Group, a third of regular church attendees haven't experienced or felt the presence of God in the last year. This is an old study, but I'm guessing the facts are still true. That hurts my heart. A third of us in this room haven't experienced the presence of God in the last year? Really? When was the last time you experienced God's presence? When was the last time you asked God to experience his presence? Are you hungry for it? Or is your relationship with God something that you carry out when you need something? God cares about your needs. And we're to bring them to him. I I want to be clear about that. But all of our interactions shouldn't be and can't be about what we need from God. You're not carting out God to meet a need. You're dwelling in his presence. When we have regular encounters with Jesus, it changes everything. It changes the way you view things. It changes the way you interact with people. It changes everything. Maybe you would say you don't know if you've ever experienced the presence of God in your life or that it's been a really long time. Is there something standing in the way from you experiencing the presence of God in your life? Is there a thought pattern, a sin pattern? Is there something standing in the way from you experiencing the God's presence in your life? Have you stopped hungering for God's presence? I can tell you that there have been times in my life where I have stopped hungering for God's presence. Things were going along just fine. I didn't need God in my everyday, day in and day out. Things were just fine. 
you know what? Things were not just fine. Without the presence of God, nothing was fine. I thought I was doing it all in my own strength, but really everything was falling, falling apart. I needed the presence of God every day, whether everything was running smoothly or everything was falling apart. I needed God's presence. Have you stopped hungering for his presence? Maybe there's some of you here today that have never surrendered your heart and life to Jesus and you really don't know what this means. Today, you can experience the presence of Jesus in your life for the very first time. Jesus died on the cross for forgiveness of sins to invite you into relationship with him and we would love to explore that with you today. You can experience the presence of Jesus. For those of you that hate loose ends, let me just clear some things up for you. The ark was returned to the tabernacle that David set up, and it stayed there until King Solomon built a permanent temple as the Lord instructed him. The ark resided there until, until it didn't. You will likely never fulfill your lifelong goal of becoming Indiana Jones and heading to the Middle East and seeking out the ark. I'm really sorry to break that to you today if that was your goal in life. The ark is not there. We don't know exactly where it is. There's a really great chance that King Nebuchadnezzar had it melted down when he destroyed the temple. It's not explicitly mentioned in scripture, but there's a really good chance. But aside from your lost dream of, the, of being Indiana Jones, it doesn't really matter where the ark is because his glory no longer dwells there. It dwells in you. Today, I wanna provide an opportunity to spend some time seeking the Lord's presence. Maybe you need to dance before the Lord with abandon and not care what anybody else thinks. Maybe you need to sit and soak and just receive his presence and say, Lord, I need to experience you today. Some of you are going through really hard things, serious struggles, and I just I don't want to make you feel like you shouldn't ask God to, to move and intervene. You absolutely should. But what I want to suggest to you is that maybe you need to take your eyes off of the thing that's so hard and place them on the one who holds it in his hands. I was listening to a book on Friday that said we need to spend less time doing for God and more time abiding with God. Take your eyes off the world and sit in the peace that comes only from the presence of God. Don't think about what you're facing. Rest in the one who's facing it for you. Pastor Tracy, Pastor Ethan, Ms. Margaret, and I were at a conference uh, at the beginning of October, and our district superintendent, Jason Small, preached a message very similar to this one. I may have borrowed a few things. It's fine. Don't worry about it. He will be fine with it. Uh, but he provided an opportunity for us just to be in God's presence. And can I tell you, it changed things for me. I seek God's presence every day. I spend time in his word. I spend time in prayer but he carved out a space and a time for us just to sit and soak and be in God's presence. And you know what? I heard from God. I heard from him and it changed things for me. Things that I didn't even know that I needed to change. Things I didn't know that I needed to work on. Things I didn't know that the Lord had been calling out in my life. It changed things for me. And I can say with absolute certainty that that time spent soaking in God's presence allowed me to say yes to things that are happening right now that I would not have been able to say yes to if I hadn't had that time with God. 
There are things in your life, church, that God is preparing for you, and you will not be able to say yes to them if you cannot abide in Christ right now. That is true. And so, worship team, if you would come back, I want to create a space today to soak in God's presence. I want you to ask yourself, is there something that's stopping me? Have I stopped desiring God's presence? Ask the Lord, what is it that I need from you this morning? And if you have never experienced God's presence, come and find me. I would love to do that with you today to help you experience God's presence for the first time. These altars are open if you want to get up and move. No one's going to come pray with you today. This is a time between you and God. A time to experience and soak in God's presence. You are carriers of his presence. Seek proximity to his presence today. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your presence. I thank you that you dwell among us, God, that we are your church, we are your people. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come. Holy Spirit, come. Meet with us today. Speak to us today. Let us encounter you today, Lord. We invite you, Lord, to speak.